interior box day. It's dark, there's panting. A small ray of light illuminates M-A-X-I on a blue dog tag. Welcome to 10 Pages, the podcast that helps emerging screenwriters workshop their scripts. We're your hosts, Cam Clark and Justin P. Bechtold. Thanks, Cam. Our guest writer today is Alison R. Benson. Welcome, Alison. Thank you. Now, Alison is writing an animated family short called Maxi. Sounds great. Let's jump straight into it. Fade in. Interior. Box. Day. It's dark. There's panting. A small ray of light illuminates M-A-X-I on a blue dog tag. Maxi is a puppy. He looks at the light source. Interior, living room, continuous. His small nose pokes through. It sniffs the air. The child screams with delight. Interior, box, continuous. Maxi falls back, startled. Maxi's POV. The lid of the box is tossed. The light is blinding. A precocious little face peers in. A girl, seven, pulls Maxi out, squeezes him. He's a Pomeranian poodle, a tiny white fluff ball of cuteness. He licks her face. She drops him. He doesn't mind. He races around the room. He stops to gaze at his new world. Whoa, a Christmas tree, a mother, a father, a girl, and snow. It's perfect. My family, my family forever, he sighs. The photo is taken. Maxie's face is squished. Exterior garden, day. The garden glistens white. The girl finishes colouring Maxie's head with a green felt pen. Maxie bounces in and out of the snow. It's deep. So much fun. Snow is stuck to his whiskers. He shakes it off. The girl laughs. She squeezes him. The mother taps on the window. The girl drops Maxie, flies inside. Maxie tries to catch up. The snow is too deep. The door is closed. He waits, shivers. The sun sets. The door opens. Interior, living room, day. The girl is so excited. She blows out a number eight birthday candle. The mother, father and Maxie regard her with love. Colourful paper and toys strewn the floor. The girl looks at the mother with contempt, her hands on her hips. The mother smiles. She brings out one last gift. The girl screams with delight. It's a doll. She hugs it. The mother laughs. Maxie grabs the doll's foot in his mouth, shakes it. The girl pushes him off. He picks up his leash, eyes pleading. The mother points to his bed. He sees a work boot. He picks it up. It's big, fun. He shakes it. The father grabs the shoe, threatens to hit him. He cowers, goes to his bed, obedient, resigned. Exterior, back veranda, day. Maxie's bed is on the veranda, his leash beside him. His fur is quite scruffy. Snow blows sideways. Maxie's POV. The girl plays with her doll. The humans on their phones. He barks for attention. Nothing. The snow stops. He chews a shiny shoe. The mother rushes out. She throws the matching shoe at him. He dodges. The father comes out. The mother points at a pile of chewed shoes, then at Maxie. She waves her arms at the father. The father shrugs, nods. He attaches Maxie's leash, jangles his car keys. Exterior, car, continuous. The car moves slowly to the end of the driveway. It stops. The father blasts the horn at oncoming traffic. Maxie jumps at the sound. It's loud. As the car screeches off, he looks back through the rear window. Exterior, countryside, dusk. The car stops. It's quiet. Snow everywhere. It's beautiful, white, pure. Maxie jumps out, his leash in his mouth, hopeful. The father ties Maxie's leash to a post, returns to his car. 
drives away. Maxie's POV. Red taillights fade in the distance. Maxie pulls on the post. The leash comes loose. He runs down the road. It's dark. He's confused. Headlights come towards him. Closer. Closer. The horn blasts. The car swerves. Maxie jumps out the way. He lands in a pile of slush. He's a brown, wet mess. He sits. He howls a long, sad howl. Exterior, countryside house, night. Light shines from a house. He scratches on the door. No one comes. He sees a barn. Interior barn, night. He opens the door with his nose. He buries himself in hay, falls asleep. Interior barn continuous. Something wakes him. It's a snow shovel. He races out the barn, hay stuck to his fur. He's like a wild animal with a leash. Exterior countryside, continuous. Maxie walks wearily along the road. The snow glistens in the moonlight. A mouse looks for food. Maxie, curious, sniffs it. It scampers away. A raccoon wanders past. Maxie bounces up to it. The raccoon hisses, runs off. Exterior, countryside, dawn. Maxie walks alone, heartbroken, tired, cold. He lays down. His eyes gently close. His shivering stops. Silence. Beat. Something wraps around him. Maxie's POV. With blurry vision, he sees a warm, caring face. This is James, 20s. The sun rises. Interior, veterinary, day. Maxie sits on a table. He looks wretched. He cowers. James's partner, Ellie, 20s, kind, tears up. The vet nurse strokes his matted, dirty fur. Maxie's grooming montage. The vet nurse shaves a trembling Maxie. He's bathed. The water runs brown. He's blow-dried, brushed. End of Maxie's grooming montage. Maxie is scanned for a microchip. The vet nurse shakes her head. Ellie holds James' hands. They share a look of compassion. James nods. Ellie throws her arms around him. Interior, Ellie's living room, day. Maxie curls up in his new bed beside the couch. He wears a jumper. Noodles, a pretty but overweight poodle with golden curls, lays between James and Ellie. She's smaller than Maxie. One paw rests on Ellie's lap. The room is filled with sunlight, warm, comfortable, inviting. Noodles rolls over. James rubs her tummy. Ellie looks for Maxie. He's gone. She kneels on the floor. He's under the couch, trembling. Noodles jumps down, stumbles, crawls under, snuggles close. Interior, Ellie's living room, day. Maxie's in his bed. Ellie gently caresses his ears. Their eyes lock. A moment. James walks in wearing work boots. Maxie runs under the couch. Interior, Ellie's living room, night. It's dinner time. Ellie arranges matching bowls with their names. Noodles scoffs her dinner. Maxie eats nothing. Noodles nudges Maxie's bowl closer. He turns away. Noodles shrugs, eats it. Interior, Ellie's living room, morning. Maxie jumps up on a coffee table. Noodles jumps up beside him. He looks at photos. Photo montage. Noodles asleep on her back. Noodles resting on the lawn. The humans holding noodles. End of photo montage. Maxie lays on his bed. His face sad. Noodles lies facing him. She licks his nose. Interior, Ellie's living room, day. Ellie brings out two new leashes, one purple, one black. Noodles jumps off the couch, stumbles again, recovers. Her leash is attached. Maxie runs under the couch. 
Noodles takes the leash to him. He sniffs it. She nudges it closer. Maxie takes it in his mouth, crawls out. He hesitates, then with a sudden burst of energy, he dashes around the room like he did as a puppy. Exterior park, day. Maxie yanks Ellie's arm forward. His small legs scamper. He goes nowhere. Ellie's other arm is pulled back by very slow noodles. A large docile dog walks past. Maxie, in his excitement, barks at the dog. Ellie shrugs with an I'm sorry look. The owner returns a control your dog look. Noodle stops walking. Ellie pulls her. She doesn't budge. Ellie picks her up. They go home. Interior, Ellie's living room later. Maxie on his bed watches Noodle's tummy rub. Ellie beckons him. He jumps up, rolls over. Ellie rubs both tummies. Maxie and Noodle's heads touch. Their eyes close. Bliss. Interior, Ellie's living room, night. Dinner time. Maxie ravenously eats his dinner. Noodles looks in his bowl. Disappointment plus. Interior, Ellie's living room, day. Maxie takes both leashes in his mouth, dashes around the room. Noodles watches from the couch. He drops the leashes at her feet. She jumps down, stumbles, doesn't move. Maxie pushes her with his nose. Ellie carries her to her bed. James looks at a card. Vet, 24 hours. Maxie lies facing her. He licks her nose. The leash is beside them. Maxie falls asleep. Interior, Ellie's living room, night. Maxie's eyes open to the sound of jangling keys. The front door closes. He looks at Noodle's bed. She's gone. The leash is gone. Everyone has gone. He howls. Montage, Maxie. Maxie pushes his dinner to Noodle's empty bowl. He lays in Noodle's bed with his leash. He sits under the couch. End of Maxi montage. Interior, Ellie's living room, day. The front door opens. Noodle's runs in. Maxie's euphoric. He runs a lap of the room. He stops to face her. His eyes shift from Noodle's to James, to Ellie, back to Noodle's. Noodle's smiles. They all smile. He understands. I'm going to be okay. A tear. Noodle's licks him. James places a pamphlet on the table. Weight loss for dogs. Exterior, dog enclosure, day. Noodles, Maxie and the docile dog chase each other. James and Ellie chat with the owner. Maxie hears a familiar scream. The girl. She points at him. She drops her doll in the slush. Maxie, his tail down, walks backwards. The mother turns from her argument with the hot dog man. The father, his phone midair, his mouth open, Stares in disbelief. James comforts Maxie. Maxie trembles. Maxie looks up into James's caring eyes. Beat. He stops trembling. He licks James. He licks him again and again. He rolls to Ellie, licks her. Jumps onto Noodles, licks her. They roll and snuggle. The mother and father watch in disbelief. The mother, frustrated, thrusts the dirty, wet doll into the girl's chest, whacks the father on his back, pulls the girl's arm... She resists, pulls harder. The girl trips. They hurry away. Maxie never turns back. Interior, Ellie's living room, Christmas day. The room sparkles with Christmas. Ellie, James, Noodles and Maxie prepare for a photo. Maxie has a big toothy smile, two leashes in his mouth. Click. He jumps down. He faces his family. His tail wags. Click. The end. (laughs) 
Okay, Alison, can you briefly give us a little bit of background about yourself and the project? I'm from Sydney. I'm a very family orientated person. I have four children. One's adopted because we lived in the Cook Islands for five years and got a grandchild. Uh, I've actually been a teacher for 40 years and I've always loved children's literature and anything that has a strong meaning behind it. I've always been fascinated with film and production. In fact, I put my four kids in modelling so that I could get onto a production set and, um, and that, was, that was really fun. It, it's just wonderful to be around people that share the same passion and vibe, you know, like you guys, so that's good. Uh, always loved animals and have had rescues. So Maxie and Noodles are actually our dogs and Maxie is our last rescue. His story was actually a little bit tragic. He's called a golden oldie. He's 11 when we got him last year. The owners had a new baby and they wanted to put him down. He was too much of a hassle. So they contacted the, the organisation that looks after old dogs and then a week later uh, we had him. And Noodles is also a rescue. It's true, Max is just flies forward and Noodles is a bit overweight and she always holds behind. And on my website, alisonrbenson.com, I'm about to put up some photos of the actual dogs. So at the start of this year when COVID started, I read that lots of people were getting themselves dogs because they provide wonderful emotional support. And what concerned me is like what happens after Christmas where people don't realise that a dog is a 10 to 20 year financial and emotional commitment. And that the concern, of course, is that a lot of these dogs are going to be surrendered. So I sort of took my Max's story and the COVID potential story and just mashed them together and came up with Maxie. Mm, great. All right. There are quite a few things that I wanted to talk about. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to focus on when we have a look at this script? I wasn't sure if the beginning was too long, but... I wanted to make sure that it was established that the family had no understanding at all about how to care for an animal, yet the dog the whole time was naive and trusting. That was one area. And also with the very ending, I wanted something cathartic and I don't know if I've achieved that. I didn't know whether or not to bring the original family back in or just leave it at the photos. Right. Okay. Well, look, I suggest that we work our way through the script from beginning to end, if that's going to work for both of you guys. Sure. I just wanted to offer a general note about writing animation because I've written quite a bit of animation. Animators love to be supplied with information about what it is that they're creating, more so than when you write live action. When you write live action, you can provide information which the director and the actor will interpret and they'll come up with some business, etc. But in my experience, when you're writing animation, the animators really love for you to paint images for them that they can work with. My animation scripts tend to be longer than live action scripts for that reason because they have to create everything. It's not like they go to a set and there is stuff. They've got to create this stuff themselves. So if you can paint pictures, I find animators really, really appreciate that. The second thing I wanted to mention about writing for animation is that you can go crazy and do stuff which can't necessarily happen in the real world. But I don't think that's such an important thing for this script because this script isn't one of those stretch and bounce type scripts where you're kind of turning the laws of physics on their head, except that you've got dogs smiling and stuff like that. So you can take advantage of that. So those are just a couple of notes in terms of animation. A general note for the writing, I'm going to suggest that there is room in this script to maybe sell your story a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, you're describing what happens. It's like 
it's almost like there are points, there's some bits that it feels a little bit like a beat sheet where you're saying this happens, this happens, this happens, rather than being excited about the story. Okay. So if, we, if you're able to inject some of the excitement that you feel for this story into your telling of the story, I think that would go a long way. My problem is, and I was just telling Justin before that I've got all these books that I've been reading about the theory behind writing is that because I'm a literal person, I take everything literally. So when I'm writing, right. I'm thinking, right, this has got to be done by this time and this has got to be done by this time. And I think the clinical side of writing does sometimes interfere with the subjective side. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, because, look, it's the people, you've got to also think about who is reading this script. Yeah. And it's going to be a producer or it's going to be a funding body or it's going to be a director. They want to read it and hear your excitement whenever you're doing any writing, just imagine that you're just talking to somebody over a cup of coffee or a beer, whatever you prefer, and just be excited about the story that you're telling and make it a bit conversational. I had a sort of a similar note about that is that I can, I can see that at the core of this story is a very deeply moving, uplifting message, just dying to get out, but it just needs a little bit of help. Okay. You know, when you drive along the highway and the, and the sunlight flashes through the trees yep. as you're driving, it's a little bit how I see the story that I get plenty of flashes of what you're driving at, but I can't quite see it directly. I feel like there's something much deeper, but I feel like you're just skimming the surface. There's something much deeper here that you want to delve into. Don't be afraid to just go deeper. Sounds good. Can we get to some specifics? I just wanted to clarify something. When you said that she's colouring the dog's head with a green felt pen, what did you mean by that? Is that literally she's drawing on the dog? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Because I was reading it and I was thinking, is she drawing the dog or is she... I wasn't familiar at that point with who she was and what her relationship was with the dog. So that's just to clarify for me. I can see how that's ambiguous. Yeah, because it sounds like she could be actually drawing a picture, but she was actually drawing in the dog's head. I did that because I was thinking that white on white, because the dog's white and Snow's white, and this was a mm. way of being able to see the dog, even though that's actually what happened, the dog was painted. <laughs> I actually thought that was a true incident because it just seemed so bizarre. Yes. It seemed too bizarre to be made up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you should draw from. You draw from your own experiences. You know, and that's what makes your writing unique, you know, from other people's versions. On page one, he waits, shivers. It felt to me like there needed to be some sort of hint as to why this was happening. You know, why has the girl forgotten the dog? Because at this point, we're being introduced to the girl and the dog and the relationship is new. And I guess I was just a little bit confused because she's so, you know, you get a dog and it's all very exciting it felt like there needs to be a little bit more business going on to explain why the girl is behaving this way towards the dog. Mm -hmm. Why has she forgotten him? I don't know. Did you feel that Justin or, or not? You asked earlier that one of your concerns with the start was maybe a bit too long. Mm -hmm. Whereas I felt the opposite. I felt the beginning was actually too short. Oh, okay. From reading your log line that you said that this story is about that he must learn to trust again. And I feel like that's the key part of your log line, but I don't feel like 
we've actually addressed the trust part mm. at the beginning. Right. I don't so think, you need I don't to set, up, set that yeah. up. Yeah. yeah okay. You need to set up the relationship yeah. and then destroy the relationship somehow. So maybe there's got to be a, a scene where the trust is already being jeopardized. Well, we, we need to see it get broken, I think. Yeah. If, if, so before he's abandoned, he's already lost the trust or, or something happens to make him question the trust. Are you familiar at all with Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling? Can you tell me about it? You mentioned in your email that you're after a Pixar kind of vibe. So, mm-hmm. so Pixar has 22 rules that they use as a guideline for creating unique stories that resonate across the globe. If you just Google 22 rules of storytelling in your search engine, you'll find them. I'm not going to go through all 22 of them, but there's a few of them that I think are sort of pertinent. The first one, which is rule number four, which is Pixar's story spine. So it's basically the building blocks on which the stories are constructed. So it's actually an improvised technique developed by Ken Adams. And the story spine is an eight sentence exercise. It helps you learn and practice how good stories are told. They provide you with a part of the sentence and then you fill in the blanks. So the sentences are just once upon a time, there was blank every day, blank one day, blank because of that blank because of that blank because of that blank until finally blank and ever since then blank. The once upon a time and the every day, that's your beginning. So that's where the world and the story is introduced and the main character's routine is established. So that's what I think is missing from this at the moment is that we're not seeing that world set up and we're not seeing that trusted routine being established. You know, what goes on every day, you know, what do we see about Max, you know, every day that leads to this trust that's going to be broken later on. And then that's the event, right? That's the, the, but one day blank. So that's the event where the main character breaks the routine. And then you've got the, because of that, because of that, and because of that, that's all the middle part where there are dire consequences, you know, for having broken the routine. And it's unclear whether the character is going to, you know, come out all right in the end. Until finally, this is your climax where the main character embarks upon success or failure. And ever since then, this is the end where the main character succeeds or fails and the new routine is now established. So keeping that story spine in mind, that's not like everything that happens in the story. That's just the basic spine of it, the building blocks. Mm -hmm. So, and then you add all your other characters and all the crazy stuff that happens around that. But as long Mm -hmm. as you're hitting those parts of that story spine, then you're going to have, you know, a really great story at the Mm -hmm. end of it. That's gold. That whole 22 pages is gold. Uh, The 22 rules is gold. Especially for animation, you know, and if you're trying to, you know, write something, particularly with that Pixar kind of vibe, you know, this is something that they use and it's tried and tested. Look at all their films. They're so moving and they're amazing. Have you looked at structure at all? Like, have you done any research into structure? Yeah, I've looked at Michael Haig's The Writer's Journey, which is based on Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, and also Blake Snyder and and Sid Fields. I've got those books as well. Okay. I have more notes on page two of your script than I have the rest of the script combined. Okay. So I don't want you to feel that I'm dumping on you all, all this stuff. It's just page two. I just had some questions about that. So this is not so much the workshopping stuff. This is stuff that I just wanted to mention to you that perhaps you could tidy up a little bit yeah. and just to make it a bit of an easier read. So I'll just go through those quickly if I may. Yep. So the sun sets, the door opens. So I'm presuming that this is sometime later? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to recommend that you give that a scene heading. Anytime yep. that you jump through time or jump to another location, 
it should be a new scene. The sun sets, the door opens. It felt to me like we should see the mother calling to him or something. It just felt a little bit unresolved, that scene. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if the mother could call to him and he could slink inside half frozen. Maybe the mother is chastising the girl for or wagging a finger at the girl for leaving him out there. Or I don't know. It, it almost felt like there was a scene which just kind of a bit unresolved mm-hmm. for me. Yep because of the kind of dynamics between that family, like even if he's just managed to scratch away and scratch away at the door and then finally being able to squeeze his way into the door, because it feels like if you're trying to show that kind of neglect, that that could be an option for you as well, that, you know, because it's always better to have your character creating the action. Mm -hmm. So if he manages to find his way in there himself, because, you know, no one's going to help him because they're all distracted, you know, that's, mm. that could also be another option. Okay. Yeah. She blows out a number eight birthday candle. The mother and father of Maxie, they regard her with love. Colourful paper and toys strewn across the floor. The girl looks at the mother with contempt. So I guess my question is, presumably there is, this is another time jump here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that would be a new scene as well. I just found it a little bit confusing. Like I had to go back and reread stuff because I've got her smiling in one and then suddenly she's glaring. I'm thinking, what just happened? And then I'm, oh no, there's a time thing here. So just to clarify some of that stuff, I think would make it an easier read. Okay, sure. In the script, we have the girl pushes him off. He picks up his leash. It felt like we needed a moment between these two actions. Maxie grabs the doll's foot in his mouth, shakes it, the girl pushes him off. He picks up his leash, eyes pleading. The mother points to his bed. He sees a work boot. I felt like we needed maybe the dog staring at the girl with the doll, indicating that the dog is feeling rejected. A little bit further on, he sees a work boot. He picks it up. It's big. It's fun. He shakes it. I was wondering, should he be angry when he shakes that boot because we've got him feeling rejected? Is that why he's shaking the boot because he's starting to feel a little bit anxious about where he sits within this family. As I say, I'm just going to barrel through these points and and then maybe we can talk about a different way to set up the story. On the veranda, um, you mentioned that he's watching the humans. I was got a little bit confused because I assumed that the dog, the humans were outside as well. So that's just something to clarify. Is he watching the humans who who are inside? I presume that's what's going on. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, The snow stops. Again, I think we need to indicate that this is a new scene. Is it a new scene? No, but I can make it a new scene. Okay. And then I was wondering, how does he have a shiny shoe? It seemed a bit odd that he has this shiny shoe and then she runs out with this other shoe. So I was wondering, how does he have this shiny shoe? How did we reveal that? Does he pull it out from under his blanket? I was thinking perhaps it might be better if the mother walks out and sees the chewed Louboutin in his mouth and she freaks. She grabs it off him and then tosses it onto a pile of other chewed shoes. Ah, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. And then the father comes out and at this point she's had it and she hands him the keys and he's at first reluctant to take them from him, but she thrusts them into his hand and glares at him and he sighs, picks up the leash, and that would basically be the end, the end of the scene. One of the things that was running through my, my mind through all is this, is where is the girl? What's going on with the girl? Because it really it's a relationship about him. The way we've set it up is, or you set it up, is it's about the dog and the girl. So I was wondering where is the girl in all that? So those were my notes from the way that you've set it up. But I was wondering, and please, Justin, jump in at any point here. 
I was wondering, what is it that you're trying to say in terms of setting up the story? And it occurred to me that maybe another way to approach the setup would be to have this dog arrive, small, cute, fluffy, the girl is thrilled, she's delighted. So I was wondering if you could maybe have a montage at the beginning. So delightful little dog at the beginning, and then we see it as it slowly gets bigger and less cute. So when it's small and it's cute, it jumps up on the girl and it licks her face and she's delighted. Then it's a little bit bigger, it jumps up on her and she falls to the floor and smashes a vase and it's licking her face and she's unimpressed. It's bigger again and it's creating havoc and everybody's getting exasperated. And then we see it being chained up outside in the snow and everybody's sighing with relief. Could that potentially be another approach to setting up the story, which just indicates what you were saying at the beginning of all this, which is people buy these dogs. It's a Christmas thing. They're delighted. They don't understand what that means, you know, as the dog grows bigger. Um, mm. What do you think? Is that something that would potentially be worth exploring or do you want to stick yes. with your script? No, no, no. I think that I agree that in all trueness, there was not a lot that the dog did considering it's still small and cute, that would warrant them abandoning it the way they did because it wouldn't be very hard to find someone that would take a cute little dog. Mm. Um, I think the problem is is that when you write from true stories, you feel that you owe it right. to the story to be real, to, to be as true as possible. And that's why I wanted to keep it the Pomeranian Poodle because that's what it is. It's a Pomeranian Poodle. Whereas what would be more realistic is that somebody buys a little dog that turns into a huge Staffy or a huge Labrador, something that is monstrous. Yeah, that, that yeah. It is hard to have, you know, living fur everywhere and everywhere they walk, yeah. they knock things over. And then you can understand it is painful. And when, whenever you are writing from real experience, you, you always need to remember that life is not constructed dramatically. In life, stuff happens and stuff happens and stuff happens, but you don't have that dramatic structure, but it's your job as a screenwriter to take that stuff and then organise it in such a way that the drama comes out. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your inspiration needs to be just that. That's your inspiration and then construct a story which works dramatically. Yeah. That's up to you, but... I was thinking that perhaps that might be a way of just really cutting through all those various little bits of action business that you've got there to demonstrate the central idea, which is here's a dog which we love as a cute little poodle or little Pomeranian thing, not so much when it grows big and yeah. mm. there's all this work involved and it's chewing the shoes. Yeah, yeah. And that usually is the case. It's when it gets big. It loses that cuteness and right. the attraction. Um, yeah, I had a similar feeling in that because it opens with Christmas and we're in the snow and then the next scene is her birthday still in the snow. To me, that indicates a very short passage of time. Does it indicate that her birthday is right next to Christmas? Mm. So I felt that was confusing, especially because there was nothing to indicate that Max has gotten older. So I didn't know how much time had passed. So I thought that was a little bit confusing at the beginning in terms of the time frame, as Cam suggested, like it started in the snow, then her birthday is in the summer. And then by the time we get back to Christmas again, the next year or whatever, I don't know. It's, that it's sense, yeah. you know, that, that mm -hmm. could be another way to sort of show a bit of a passage in time. Yes. I see there are two ways of beginning this story. One is to either set more of that 
relationship up in the beginning. So we see more of them, their relationship and their closeness and him building trust and all that kind of stuff. We see more of those things or all of this stuff is completely backstory. The story could start when James finds him in the snow. Yeah. You know, and he's all covered in sticks and twigs and stuff. And, you know, maybe he thinks there's some creature out there that's stealing stuff from his porch. Maybe a pie goes missing off a shelf or, you know, his shoes go missing and there's tracks around and he's determined to catch this thing that's in the bush or whatever. And then uh, when he finally catches this creature, it turns out once they clean it all down, it turns out to be a dog, you know, but when they see it, it's all covered in leaves and mud and stuff like that. So he's already in that untrusting state. I mean, like Mm. I said, there are two different ways of approaching it. And then it just means it it sort of changes your story a little bit, which way you want to go. Mm. But I have another idea, but I'll I'll bring that up a bit later on because here's some more notes first. Just on page four, you mentioned that something wakes him. It's a snow shovel. I just didn't understand what that meant. What was the snow shovel doing? Oh, the the man from the house had come out and was pushing him with the snow shovel. So that just needs to be clarified. Okay, yep. Because if I didn't get it. Yes, that's right. Everything that you're saying is (laughs) the audience. So everything that you're saying is valid, everything. (laughs) And I felt like if he goes in at night, when he wakes up, it felt to me like it should be morning, dawn. It felt a bit odd that he would be walking wearily along the road at night. I wasn't sure why he would be would have been woken up. For me, it felt like he should go to bed, it's night, and then the new dawn, off he yeah. trudges. And start again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can just step back to an earlier scene where Maxie gets taken out into the car when the father takes Maxie away. Like I feel yeah. that's an opportunity to show some of Maxie's trusting nature. So like when the father picks up the leash, like that's the opportunity for Maxie to get excited, you know, that mm. he's finally being noticed again after, you know, that's he's nice. been forgotten yeah. for all this time. And when yeah. he picks that up, like he starts to get excited. And, and so the car ride for him should be like joyous. You know, he's mm. got his head out the window, the tail wagging and the tongue mm. flapping in the wind and something funny happens and, and he barks at something outside the car and the, the power window mm. goes up slowly, stopping his fun. And then the important bit is when the car stops and his door opens and the father puts the leash on him and they walk together. So he's kind of like strutting with his chest puffed out and we should see how blissfully happy he is in that moment. And then they, they both stop and then maybe Maxie rolls over for a belly rub, but he doesn't get one and he's momentarily distracted by a butterfly or something behind him. And we see the father's legs walk away. And then Maxie excitedly bounds after him, but something chokes him back on his collar and he's frozen in his tracks and he tugs a couple of times, but still can't move. And he looks back and it's only now that we see that the leash is tied to a fence post or a roadside post. Okay. Yeah. And then he looks back to the father, but the door's already closing on the car and he barks and the car peels out and then Maxie tugs and tugs and tugs and then his leash snaps and runs after the car. So, so make a full scene of that, not just he drives yeah. away. Yeah, and, yeah. Don't, and don't show the dad tying him up. That's the reveal of, like, Maxie's thinking, yeah, yeah. Know, oh, this is great, you know, and he's building his trust again, but that's only going to be taken away from him. And so that reveal of him, you know, thinking, oh, we're going for a walk and blah, 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 but then he can't move. But it's only when he turns around that he realises he's been tied up. That's then really we nice. get, oh, he's been abandoned. Mm. That's great. Yeah, I like that one. 
On page five, the room is filled with sunlight, warm, comfortable, inviting. Noodles rolls over, James rubs her tummy. Ellie looks for Max. Uh, Maxie, he's gone. She kneels on the floor. He's under the couch, trembling. So it wasn't clear to me why Maxie went from curled up happily in his bed to cowering under the couch. Mm. Yep. Yeah, same. If Maxie has previously been traumatised, then we really need to see that set up earlier on a little bit more clearly. I like the idea of him being stressed out by the side of boots. There might be a scene earlier on where he gets kicked by a work boot. And so that becomes an image for the audience to lock onto. So then they get it when he sees work boots later on. So we repeatedly, the you know, we set up work boot, work boot, work boot, bad. Mm-hmm. And then that's clear why he behaves that way. Yeah. Um, also, it wasn't clear to me why Maxie was not eating. What was going on there? It's just a reaction of dogs when they're scared. But given that he's now in this good place, yeah, I was wondering why he would be reacting that way. I guess I was thinking that when people are sad, they don't eat. It's sort of a give up phase that they right. go through. I guess what I was thinking was in the old house, he was experiencing bad things, but he was eating. And then he goes to a new house where he's experiencing good things and he's not eating. It felt like it kind of should be the other way around. So really um, there should be a link between the old house and the new house. So if I want him to not be eating in the new house, something has had had to have happened in the old house, then like the boot. If he's being traumatised in the old house, I can imagine that he's not eating and then he goes to the new house and maybe he's still not eating, but then he starts to eat. Potentially. Yeah, because again, based on fact, when we got the dog, he wouldn't eat. <laughs> of course, we don't know his backstory. Right. Because I guess what was going on for your dog was he's ended up in a good house, but he doesn't know that. He just thinks he's in a new bad house. That's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he's only ever experienced bad houses. So I'll have to think about that. Even if I take it out altogether, it really doesn't gel. Well, look. I'm just going to leap forward a little bit, only because we're talking about the eating thing, because another thing that didn't quite make sense for me was if the issue is that Noodles has been eating Maxie's food, wouldn't it make more sense that Maxie needs the vet because of weight loss rather than Noodles needs the vet because of weight gain? Ah, okay, yeah. And again, this is real. Noodles constantly eats his food because he's so slow. He only eats half Mm. and walks away. I actually thought Noodles was going to turn out to be pregnant and... They were going to come home with puppies. That's what I... Well, I actually thought that in my story, unless I change it like what what you suggested, Cam, and make the dog older. He's a puppy and I thought I couldn't do that to him. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't make him a dad too early, but I I did think of that. Um, All right, I'm going to backtrack. The photo montage, I just wanted to mention because I didn't feel that it was necessary, that it wasn't really adding anything to the story. And I just thought that could potentially be something that you could cut. Um, And going back to the business of the dog being happy or sad in the circumstances, Maxie is sad, sad, but for me, I know this doesn't jive with your reality, you know, what you experienced, but in terms of the narrative, the story suggests that he should be happy at his change of circumstance, even though that's not what happened in reality. I think it kind of confuses the story for the audience if he goes from bad situation the good situation and the good situation makes him miserable. I think what makes sense is what we mentioned before about how he goes from bad situation to new situation, but doesn't understand that it's a new situation, mm-hmm. a better situation rather. And maybe that could be made clear. That comes down to his 
sense of trust. I think you have to find moments like ways that he can express that, that we see it from an audience's point of view, that we see he's starting to trust or, you know, not trusting. So there has to be some kind of actions that are, that he's performing, that he's driving, that's making us see these changes. In the beginning, he feels a little more active, but in the second half, he seems very passive and that mm. things are just sort of happening and he's not really driving any of those things. Okay. With that note also, I mean, when they see the family again in the park later on, that was a little bit jarring and a little bit confusing to me too because he was he was then in a happy place and then when he saw that family, he went back into, you know, being scared and nervous again and that just sort mm. of felt like we'd just taken another back step where he just got to that good place. I probably would be reluctant to reintroduce that family again at the end. Yeah, okay. The all is lost moment is when he wakes up and Noodles is gone. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I can see that that end bit. And that's what I said to you. I wasn't sure myself about whether to... Because I had a few people read it and they suggested that it would be a nice circle to end up with the original family, see the dog happy and and then reflect on themselves that, you know, they've done the wrong thing. I think, you know what, I think that's kind of the camp. I think this is where I'm going to disagree with Justin a little bit. I think that's kind of the camp that I'm in. Right. Because at the moment, you've got those two distinct families, the the family that just got in over their heads and didn't know what they were doing, and then the family with a bit more experience who do know and patience and they know what they're doing, they're looking after the dog. So the idea of coming back to the original family I think it could be made to work. But I don't think he can have his reaction be one of fear again. He's got to be past that now. He's got to do something to show that he's triumphed over that adversity rather than be a victim to that again. Yeah. You know, when he yeah. sees him. Otherwise, you feel like he hasn't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The feeling on. could be that he'll never overcome that every time he sees them. Yeah. I was actually thinking that maybe he could go up to the father and cock his leg on his boot. But that, <laughs> that would be a little bit arrogant. <laughs> I actually like that idea. That's a good idea. Because <laughs> I'm actually sitting here thinking, what can we do with the boot? What can we do with the boot? Because that's yeah. an image that we've got. Um, so your suggestion, I actually really like that. Here's an idea. I'm all about trying to find actions for your character to do, to drive this story. You want to set up trust. So what can we do that's going to make him show that he's trusting and then mistrusting later on and then trusting again? So what can we set up for that? So, so here's an idea. What if Max, at the beginning of the story, what if he has a squeaky toy that represents his trust? So he's given this toy, you know, maybe with the girl. It's the greatest gift he's ever received. Him and this squeaky toy, they become inseparable. And they go for walks on the leash. He carries a squeaky toy wherever they go. They roll around in the yard, him and the girl and the squeaky toy, and they play fetch with the squeaky toy. And let's go one step further. What if the squeaky toy actually represents the voice for Max, for Max's character? So that when he's happy, he chews on this toy and it has this happy, bright kind of squeak to it. And then later on when he's abandoned and struggling on his own, he kind of has this tired kind of wheeze to it until the point where it loses its squeak altogether, which really represents his complete loss of trust. And then when he meets James, you know, Maxie still guards this chewed up squeaky toy with his life and won't let anyone near it. And then as Maxie slowly starts to open up and trust James, that the wheeze starts to return to it. And the moment when Maxie finally decides to trust James, that 
he offers James his squeaky toy in much the oh, same way a, a dog drops a tennis ball, you know, at your feet and he has those big hang dog eyes and James takes up the old chew toy and understands the gravity of that gesture. But instead of throwing it out, you know, we see him then up late tinkering in his shed one night, but we don't know what he's doing. And then the next morning there's like a gift box near Maxie's bed and Maxie opens it and sees the old chew toy has been, you know, cleaned up and restored. Maxie's eyes kind of tear up and he bites down on it and it squeaks like oh, brand, like brand new. And so, you know, he's elated and he's jumping around the room and it's squeaking madly with joy. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then from that day on, they play together as a family in the park, James and Maxie and Ellie, and they're playing fetch with a squeaky toy. But then it's not James throwing it. It's like a young child. It's like James and Ellie have had a child. Yeah. And, and you know, and they're now engaging with him and playing with him. And I don't think that noodles is absolutely necessary to be able to tell their story, but if you decide okay. to keep noodles, then perhaps, you know, even there's a couple of puppies, the spitting image of Maxie and Noodles in that final scene with the squeaky toy and it's like the, it's gone to the next generation, you know, so we know he's now lived happily ever after with his trustingness. And oh, that's lovely. <laughs> Just um, bouncing off that, Justin, I really like the idea of the toy. What about they end up back at the park with that toy? I'm just trying to bring in your idea, yep. Alison. They end up back at the park with the toy and then that family rocks up or even just the girl, but maybe the whole family. And, of course, this is a, well, presumably this is a bigger dog now, so the girl might not recognise the puppy, but she does recognise the toy. Mm. And, of course, the dog recognises her and they lock eyes and she's like, what the, that can't be, is it? You know, there's a moment where the audience is thinking, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? And the dog walks over because it's got love and courage in its heart now. It walks over to her and maybe she reaches out and touches the head or something and the dog places the chew toy at her feet like it's letting go and then mm. just turns and walks away and she just sheds a little tear. Oh. Mm. Yeah. You guys want to collaborate with me? <laughs> <laughs> This is so hard to do on your own. You know, it's only eight pages. <laughs> to try and nail it in eight pages is just so hard. The whole thing about this process is, though, until you've got something on the page, you've got nothing to work with. Yeah. So you've got those eight pages now, and we've talked about all these things. Now's the opportunity to go back. You can even start from square one or whatever, but now you, you've sort of got ideas things that sort of resonate to you with the story that you want to tell and then you can start to rebuild it, you know, and reshape it into the form you want. And then every subsequent draft you do, you know, you're always going to be refining and expanding and growing mm. and finding better or newer ways to do things. Mm. It's a great process, but, you know, don't give up on the process of writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting because that's where the gold nuggets are. One of their rules in Pixar is that, you know, don't go for the obvious. Avoid the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth option. Strive for something, you know, beyond where you're going. So just keep going, mm. keep going. The draft that I've seen, she's actually my seventh. Right. <laughs> so you're just beginning. The original one, um, Noodles had actually died, but you don't find out to the end. It was like the sixth sense. <laughs> and someone said, no, you can't do that. You know, with COVID, you can't have noodles die. <laughs> 
Well, with the sixth sense, it was actually nine drafts before M. Night Shyamalan even realised the character was dead himself. So Right. Little Miss Sunshine, I think they wrote more than 100 drafts of that. Oh, so, nice. yeah. You just yeah. keep going until you think, yeah, good enough. <laughs> is, there, is there anything that's kind of nagging at you that you would like to talk about? Or, Justin, is there anything else that you haven't talked about? No, I think you guys have given me so much stuff. It's invaluable. I think I need to go away, have a cup of coffee, go to bed early, and then tomorrow morning with a fresh head, start again. And I think I'll do another little synopsis just to drill out a few other possible... That's a good idea because it really helps you clarify what it is you're trying to to do. I would recommend maybe because, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but you don't, obviously, you don't need to or want to incorporate everything you, you want to find the path that's going to work best to tell your particular story so maybe a good way to approach that is to strip it back and maybe just go back to a beat sheet yep. you know do dot points dot points dot points yeah and then when you look at it and you say okay structurally that's working now i'm going to just tell this to somebody over a cup of coffee and write it that way yeah as a final note i would say you know like if you take a look at the 22 rules of pixar don't be constrained by what you already have so don't try to shoehorn it into what you already have you know but really try to break it out and expand you know what you have give yourself permission to go in another direction if the story compels you to do so and just see where it takes you the story may well be about a dog with trust issues but it you know could also be about something else you don't know you know just Trust in your instincts and see how you go. Yeah. That sounds great. That is all we have time for in today's episode. Please thank our guest writer, Alison R. Benson. Good luck with the rewrites, Alison. As always, everything discussed in today's 10 pages remains your own intellectual property and you reserve the right to use as much or as little of it as you like. And to any writers, producers, directors, or investors listening out there who may be interested in collaborating with Alison, how can they reach you? I have a website, alisonrbenson.com, and my contact details are in there. And thank you guys so much. You've, what the information you give me is absolutely incredible. Absolute pleasure. And if you have a project that needs development, email your logline, a brief synopsis, and your first 10 pages to 10 pages that's the number 10 not the word 10 pages podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening and keep on writing